So I'd like to tell you three stories. Um, first, a woman with formal theological training. She couldn't imagine doing anything but serving in a church and had always had a particular uh, hunger for understanding and teaching God's word. She taught in a number of women's Bible studies and small groups in the church of her upbringing. She then pursued an undergraduate degree in biblical studies and later a master's in theology. Returning to the denomination of her youth, she was then hired for a part-time position, primarily administrative. She was allowed to formally teach a women's small group class on Sunday mornings. Over time, she assisted in the teaching of the youth ministry as well, but always in a small group structure, never formally from the stage. The one time that she was invited to share a reflection on Mary during the Christmas Eve service, the lead pastor and her husband jointly stood on stage with her as she taught to lend a proper authority to her five-minute biblical reflection in a room that was comprised of both men and women. She eventually became a full-time mom to three incredible children. She never served in a church-sanctioned pastoral role, nor had she ever heard a woman formally preach in a worship gathering prior to coming to Bridgetown. Second story. A couple, retired pastors, a husband and a wife who led a church for 40 years. They went through the disorientation of moving from leading a church to participating in a church. They became visitors at various churches in the very city that they had pastored a congregation for the majority of their lives, a process that discomforted, humbled, and probably in the end matured them. Eventually, months into that search, they finally found a safe home here at Bridgetown, and this couple holds to a very generous hierarchical position, a greater gender role, or I'm sorry, a greater role distinction between men and women, and a reading of the New Testament passages on elder qualifications as being a bit more prescriptive directly than the interpretation that we have offered over the course of these lecture nights. Faithfully holding to a belief that men and women are equally gifted by the Holy Spirit and are commissioned as ministers of the gospel, that men and women can and should lead together within the church, serving and directing and pastoring and teaching, but in their view, there is a biblical distinction in the Imago Dei, sovereignly placed within men and women in the beginning, that is instructive for the role of elder in the local church, limiting that role by God's divine design to men exclusively. And they arrived at that conviction through their own thorough biblical study and taught it and operated within a structure ordered by it for the whole of their pastoral lives. Third story, a young man, late 20s, works in software engineering. His company recently did a full culture audit and determined that there were a couple of blind spots in the integrity between the way that men and women were treated in the workplace. And then in the conversations that followed, particularly with his female colleagues, as he learned about the speed bumps in their experience compared to his own, he became incredibly put off toward the company executives who had perpetu perpetuated such a culture. Then came an announcement from his local church on a committee for defining a biblical position on women and eldership. Now prior to this announcement, he had no idea that there was some theological disagreement between churches and traditions on elder qualifications. To be honest, he knew very little about biblical church structure or about Bridgetown's church structure, and he grimaced at the fact that a conversation even needed to be had on such a topic. Shouldn't the church be ahead of the marketplace when it comes to the empowerment of women? And this makes it sound like not only are we not ahead, 
but we're behind the times. Now, all three of those stories are entirely fictional. If you think I'm talking about you, I'm not. <laughs> not on purpose, at least. They are fictional caricatures of experiences that I imagine various individuals in this room have had over the course of this six plus month process and chiefly over the course of these last couple of weeks. To this point, the written statement that we released and the lectures that I've taught have centered entirely and exclusively on biblical interpretation. What does the scripture teach? And that is very much on purpose. This process has been very simply about our unchanging belief that the biblical story, every syllable on every page is true, authoritative, and it's good news. So I've done my very best to interact deeply and accessibly and honestly with scripture related to the topic of women and eldership and to do so in front of you. And now, as we conclude, we must acknowledge that we are human beings with a mind, will, and emotions. And that as a human being, there is no such thing as interacting with a topic that touches on identity and conviction exclusively intellectually. There are a range of experiences represented in this room right now and more broadly in our full congregation. I mean, just to return to the three caricatures that I painted, the woman with pastoral ambitions and longings who was never or only ever handed one side of the biblical interpretation may suddenly feel grieved, sad or angry or robbed of what could have been as she hears these teachings. And that married couple with pastoral experience who have done a similar depth of study to what I've presented and who faithfully love and serve this church community may suddenly find themselves squirming a little bit in the very church that finally began to feel like home. And the young man reading this topic according to the shaky ground of the cultural narrative rather than the sure foundation of the biblical story may have many thoughts to add that lack a common foundation to actually work and build from. And the church should be a people that diverse and more. There should be a complex web of life experiences and backgrounds and stories all coming together because we have Jesus in common, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That's what binds us together. That's what makes us the church. And even when a process of complex biblical interpretation is done honestly and clearly and healthily, it still has the potential to awaken dormant threats within a healthy church. So let me just say this exactly like I mean it. We will come out of this process more or less mature as a body. And in this final lecture, that's what I'd like to address, the threats and invitations that lie before us as we move forward from here. I'm gonna name the threats, and then Gavin and Bethany are going to follow me with concurrent invitations. So what are the threats? Simply naming threats that could grow into sin is one of the most powerful tactics that we can take against the work of the deceiver, both in our personal lives and in a community. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter five says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them. And it goes on to explain that what is exposed by God's light then becomes a light. God can take the enemy's threats, exposed, and then use those very threats to beautify the church. 
When we name threats, temptations, and even sins to God, we bring them into the light in the language of 1 John, which weakens the power of sin and calls on the power of grace. So let's name the threats that are suddenly exposed within our church, weakening their power by God's light. First threat, that you would process your subjective experience without sensitivity to theological diversity. One of the well-intended but destructive things that could happen in the coming weeks is that one person would process their experience with this topic with the assumption that we're all on the same page. I'm naming the diversity of life experiences and biblical interpretations that we bring into this topic to remind you of the beautiful diversity of the community that you are in. We selected a lecture night format to share this information very intentionally. This is not a community guide for discussion around the table because to return to the three examples I opened with, the woman with a very direct and painful emotional experience with this topic and the married couple with a thoughtful but different biblical interpretation and the person more informed by a cultural than a biblical narrative will, share, will all process these teachings personally, uniquely, and at different paces. So to share my own take or my own experience in the midst of my processing, without sensitivity to the fact that I'm sharing with others who may be carrying very different thoughts or emotions than me, both projects my experience onto another and potentially deters that own person's processing with the Lord. The woman with a direct, painful, emotional experience likely has one type of work to do in her inner life, her past and her story, and the married couple with a thoughtful but differing biblical interpretation shouldn't necessarily be expected to hear a few lectures or read a written statement and then reform a belief that they held for decades on a topic wrestled over for centuries. And the person more informed by a cultural than a biblical narrative has a completely different kind of work to do to become steeped in the biblical story and begin to build on a sure foundation. Second threat, create community out of shared pain or disagreement. A second temptation is to find those whose stories or perspectives match our own and then form a small coup out of our pain or disagreement. When someone else has a shared experience, uh, pain like I have, the potential for great comfort is then offered in that friendship. When someone thinks like I do, the potential for dialogue to refine us both is all of a sudden on the table, but an inherent threat also exists in such a discovery. Often it is very tempting to build a community around our shared pain or disagreement, to create a subgroup of individuals who have been hurt in the exact same ways that I've been hurt, or disagree in the very same ways that I disagree, and short, to build a community out of what we're against rather than what we're for, what we want to tear down rather than what we want to build up. And this type of pseudo-community, it always feels comforting at first, but it is isolating in the end. It very quickly delivers a sense of honest, understanding camaraderie, but relationships built on a shared disagreement or pain, given a little bit of time, tend to be paralyzing. It feels really good to find other people that will say, yeah, I feel that exact same way. But often those relationships do little to move us and they give much permission for us then to just sit down in our pain or disagreement, to stay in that place and to become defined by it to not seek to grow or understand or even heal, but to wallow in our shared pain or hurt and stoke the fires of one another's rebuttal or distrust without even being in the presence of someone to rebut. 
Community that affirms you without challenging you will make you feel immediately more comfortable, but it will never heal you. Third, that you would confuse family with enemy. I cannot stress this enough. Those holding to a different interpretation than the one I've outlined are not the enemy. In the very worst, most grotesque of examples, they may be people intentionally manipulating the word of God for which they will answer to the judge himself. But the vast majority of the time, they're just sincere followers of Jesus trying to order their lives by his word and understand it. And to make well-intentioned, flawed, redeemed, and still imperfect brothers and sisters into the enemy that we must fight against and win is a great delusion that we must not fall for. Do not demonize the interpretation of others. Seek to understand where necessary or appropriate, disagree or challenge with civility, and over all things put on love. Fourth and final threat, that we would equate disagreement with distrust. There's a really troubling trend in Western culture of late uh, that equates disagreement with distrust. If I disagree with you, I can no longer trust you. And if you disagree with me, how can I go on in a trusting, deep relationship with you? That is a complete false dichotomy. Every relationship of love and depth includes disagreement. Frivolous, easily resolved disagreement, disagreement that takes years to process through, and disagreement that never finds a complete consensus or shared understanding. Resilient trust is built on belief in and experience with someone's character, not in agreement with everything that they think. So yes, you can disagree with a friend or a leader or a pastor on this topic, and then continue to trust them, and vice versa. There is a counterfeit expression of trust that maintains proximity, but removes trust. That's not what I'm talking about. Resilient trust does the work to process disagreement or temptation to distrust, to come out with an authentic and often even deeper variety of trust on the other side. So those are our threats. What do we do about them? So Tyler has expressed the pastoral implications of each of these threats. And so what Gavin and I uh, now want to do is offer biblically practical alternatives to guard against these threats and hopefully move us towards unity. And I'll take the first two. He'll take the second two. Now, threat number one that Tyler mentioned was processing your subjective experience without sensitivity to theological diversity. In other words, we have to be careful to pay attention to when and with whom we process both this experience and how it intersects with our own personal pasts and futures. Everyone is coming into this conversation with their own theological history and experience, and both of those things are personal, which can make this conversation emotionally and relationally sticky. So, rather than giving in to this threat, we find the scriptures calling us to live another way. Practically, this looks like choosing and deciding to take the posture of humility, which Paul defines as valuing others above yourselves and looking to others' interests instead of your own, which, let's be honest, is a pretty big ask if we actually break that down. 
Our job as a family, according to James and Paul, is to honor each other by being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. And we can do this in part by being mindful of who we share our process with and when. We're often tempted in conversations like this, whether we're speaking or listening, to do one of three things, to react, to respond, or to refute. But we want to commit to first reflect love by going slow with our emotional response and to consistently choose to contribute to the greater good of the community above all. So when you're visiting with friends on Sunday after church and this topic comes up, you could choose to be the last one to speak, listening to others and then in humility sharing your experience, acknowledging that it's just that, your experience. Which leads us to the second threat, creating community out of shared pain or disagreement. Now that's pretty straightforward, though I'm sure none of us have done anything like this. Maybe Gavin, <laughs> but not us. When we experience pain, it is only natural for us to want to find others who can relate. There's something about this that makes us feel less alone and a little bit more justified. So instead of giving in to this threat, we find the scriptures calling us to live another way. Rather than building a community around our pain, we believe that God empowers us to build community around healing. Practically, this looks like resisting the urge to find comfort with others in pain. While we do need to have people around us who help us process, we don't need people who nurse the unprocessed pain into suspicion, cynicism, or sin. The gift, this radical gift of Christian community is that we have a high value for building up one another, for encouraging and calling each other to greater faithfulness. We all have the temptation to want to control and we all have the propensity to make an idol out of our pain, but what we really need is space to heal. So if you're here and you're experiencing tension or pain in connection to this conversation, the work we would encourage you to do is to lean into a community of healing, which could look like connecting with someone safe with whom you can process your pain. Now, by safe, we mean someone who's a little bit further along in their journey with Jesus. Perhaps that's even someone outside of the context of Bridgetown. And most importantly, that's someone who can hold your emotional experience without stirring it up and who can help you walk forward in wisdom. The third threat is to confuse family with enemy. In other words, we have to be careful to not project our past experiences or our personal convictions onto others, in so doing, making them the enemy. Because when we do this, we are not able to honestly see them or to listen to them or to understand where they're coming from. From the beginning, the Bible has been really clear about the tactics of the enemy. Satan, the real enemy, wants us to objectify other people and to blame them instead of him for the pain that we're experiencing. But Satan is the real enemy, the scriptures teach, and his objective is to steal and to kill and to destroy, especially the people of God, the church. 
So rather than letting pain be the lens through which we view each other, we find the scriptures calling us and inviting us to live another way. As disciples of Jesus, our work is to come together and to allow the spirit to transform our pain, our frustrations, our angst, whatever it is that we're feeling, so that we don't transfer it onto other people. As Paul says, we are to renew our minds. So if you're here and you're feeling the temptation to make somebody else here your enemy, someone who sees something just a little bit differently than you, we would encourage you to instead participate with the spirit in your processing, which looks like identifying your pain, bringing it to Jesus, and only then moving towards other people, which will create a space for you to love them and be loved by those who are in your Bridgetown family. And fourth and final threat is to equate disagreement with distrust. It is possible, as Tyler said, to both disagree with someone and to trust them. Disagreement can feel like a tricky thing to navigate in relationships, but as all of us can attest, agreement is not a prerequisite for healthy relationships because we never really fully 100% agree with anyone. Disagreement doesn't have to be a threat to a relationship. Instead, disagreement is often actually an opportunity to have conversations that can lead to deeper unity and ultimately to greater trust. Even Jesus' own disciples wrestled with this reality, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. They would have had radically different views of the world, and yet, as they followed the same rabbi, they were able to choose relationship in the midst of disagreement. So rather than giving in to this threat, we find the scriptures calling us to live, inviting us to live another way. The primary metaphor in the New Testament for followers of Jesus is brothers and sisters. And part of that sibling relationship, love, is to honor one another in the midst of not agreeing. It requires that deep work of believing and assuming the best while also trusting that God is at work in their lives as much as God is at work in my own. In fact, if you recall the paradigm that we used from Dr. Gary Brashear's die for, divide for, debate for, and decide for, we think theological diversity in those final two categories of debate and decide are actually valuable to kingdom life because they keep us from objectifying one another. In attachment theory and psychology, the way that you build relational trust is through the cycle of rupture and repair. When there is rupture in a relationship, it can actually build trust if you repair it. And that said, there are actually two ways to develop unhealthy attachment, not just rupture with no repair, but also, psychology tells us, no rupture to repair in the first place. We want to work out our faith in fear and trembling and to believe that disagreement around us can actually form an iron sharpening iron community as we bear with one another in love. So in closing, my friends, there is no plan for further discussion or immediate follow-up on this particular topic. Our hope and belief is that through the resources provided, we have empowered and equipped you, the saints, for the work of ministry, to understand how and why we are moving forward as a church 
on this particular theological question. We believe that the clarity provided will serve our church very well in the months and years that are ahead. And we believe that to stay here too long would be to confuse the thematic work that the Spirit is doing in our midst with the very important eldership task of guarding the doctrine of the local church. We've done our best to do the latter faithfully, honestly, and transparently, and we will continue to do our best to give the whole of our lives to the former. So in closing, in Portland as it is in heaven, that is our vision. Practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland, that is our mission be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. That's how we live it out. None of that's changing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's navigate the tension of healthy disagreement at a healthy pace, and let's keep going.